welcome to Dr. Cheryl's Pod Couch, where we talk about all things mental health. Today, I am so excited to have Dr. Amy Sullivan here. She is a licensed clinical psychologist at the University of Colorado Depression Center. She provides evidence-based psychotherapy to youth and adults with mood and anxiety symptoms with a special emphasis on treating bipolar disorder. And that's what we're going to focus on today. She has earned her doctorate in clinical psychology at CU Boulder, and she completed her pre-doctoral clinical training at UCLA with Dr. Miklowitz. Did I say that right? Exactly. Um, and so that's important because he is the creator of family-focused treatment for adolescents mm -hmm. and adults with bipolar disorder. And that's what I'm excited to talk to you guys about today. I've been through a little bit of this training, and I was so impressed with the training and the efficacy that you talked about. And I know that so many people have a loved one with bipolar disorder. So mm -hmm. I am really excited to just dive in. So the first thing I'm <laughs> going to ask you is, um, you have dedicated the last several years of your career, um, specifically to this treatment model FFT and it's family-based. So tell us why this model and, um, all about it. How many other universities are, are using it? And are there any other cities beyond Denver that are using it as well? Sure. So, so first off, thank you so much for, for having me here. I'm so thrilled to be here. Um, you know, this particular protocol, um, family focused therapy or FFT, um, I was first introduced to it in graduate school. That was, um, the lab that I was in. we we, completed some of the randomized control trials um, to test the efficacy of the, the protocol. Um, and just to give a, a little bit of a, an overview, um, the treatment, is it's a psychoeducational focus where there's three modules you go through. Um, the first set of meetings um, with the family, you're really trying to talk through the symptoms of bipolar disorder, um, what, it, what is bipolar disorder, what isn't bipolar disorder, what are the factors, the risk and protective factors that can have an influence on symptoms? And how, as a family, can we really work to limit the risk of um, future relapse? And after we have a chance to develop that relapse prevention plan, then we move on to communication skills, instruction, and then some problem-solving skills. So the overall aim of this protocol is to um, reduce family tension, reduce um, levels of hostility and parental over-involvement or, or um, family over-involvement with the, the patient because there's just tons of research to suggest that that's the best um, environment for bipolar patients to do as well as they can. Okay. So... I know that I just like jumped right into FFT <laughs> uh -huh, uh -huh. and I can do that because I can get excited. But <laughs> for anybody listening, there mm -hmm. might be people listening who say, yes, I have a loved one or myself that have been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And there might be a lot of people that are just wondering. So can you talk about what are the signs and symptoms Absolutely. And kind of start there and then we'll dive more into the model. Perfect. So, so sure. So bipolar disorder, it's bipolar is one of those terms, um, that's kind of like OCD or kind of like ADHD where it gets tossed around really, um, in such loose ways or it's such a colloquial usage. And so, um, you know, technically bipolar disorder is diagnosed when people experience two kinds of mood episodes. Um, those mood episodes are um, periods of depression and periods of either mania or hypomania. Um, and those elevated periods of hypomania or mania, they can be really, um, pleasant experiences that pe people can feel really confident, really giddy, really cheerful, um, uh, really high energy. 
Um, or they can be really irritable periods where there's just a lot of agitation and, um, and they're not particularly pleasant. But, but for um, bipolar disorder, you have to have um, or you, you typically have the combination of both of those experiences. And um, there's all sorts of um, sort of the, the definition includes all sorts of specifications about how long somebody needs to experience these um, symptoms, the combination of symptoms that are required to um, meet diagnostic criteria. But overall, we're looking for um, a combination of those depressed symptoms alternating with periods of elevated symptoms. And so how many people do you think in our country are affected by bipolar disorder? So in the U.S., it's about 3% of the population that has bipolar disorder, which translates into between 9 and 10 million individuals. That's so a it's, lot. It's a lot of people. Wow. So of those that you just said, those 9 to 10 million Americans, mm -hmm. how many of those are children? So that's a great question. So the um, that study or that... that um, that study was looking at um, adult patients with bipolar disorder. So that's um, that same percentage of teenagers and kids under 18. It's it's about two to three percent um, have a bipolar diagnosis as well. Um, although the um, exact numbers for that are still um, the research is still being completed to sort that out, just because it's been more recently. Um, accepted that children and teenagers can have a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. It wasn't that all that long ago, <clears throat> excuse me, that it was um, actually pretty controversial for somebody to suggest that a, a, um, a teenager or especially a child could have bipolar disorder. Really? Mm -hmm. That surprises me. I've been in, or I was in the first part of my career in residential treatment and we had plenty of kids who had a bipolar diagnosis. Right. Right. Um, but yes, it probably was rare and they were probably in residential treatment sure, because yeah. of it, not right. living at home. Mm -hmm. um, so when, if I'm a parent and I'm listening to this, cause mm -hmm. I hear this a lot, I hear this a lot, even when it comes to young, young children, parents will say, I don't know. I mean, one day they're happy and the next day they're angry. Right. Could they be bipolar? So for you, what are the ways that you kind of go, I understand kids, they're developing and they can be moody. Mm -hmm. Here's the difference between a moody, unpredictable roller coaster type of emotional kind of kid versus somebody who you may really look to see what the signs of bipolar are. That is such an important question. Um, and it's something that, that comes up, um, certainly in uh, clinically for me a lot as well, this question of, you know, a lot of times parents will phrase it as, you know, does my child have a diagnosis of teenager dumb or is this potentially a, a mood disorder? Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that it's, um, it's important to look at, at that, um, at answering the question in a number of different ways. Um, first we want to look at the intensity of the kinds of things that the, the teenager or the child is experiencing. So, um, a certain amount of sleep dysregulation is really normal in um, youth. There's just a lot of sleeping in on the weekends, trouble sleeping. That's that's pretty typical. But if there's consistent difficulties with sleep that interfere with the child's ability to function at school, to do things that they want with parents or, or, or friends, um, or especially if there's a decreased need for sleep where there's a... Um, a true lack of desire to get more sleep, not a child who only sleeps five hours and they're tossing and turning all night trying to sleep, but a child who only sleeps five hours at night because like who has time for sleep? I've got stuff to do. 
those are the kinds of things that we pay attention to because of the intensity that it's above and beyond what we'd expect a normal development. Yeah. Let me say something about that because, Mm -hmm. um, when we did the training, when I did the training with you, Uh that was probably my greatest takeaway, to be Mm -hmm. honest, Mm -hmm. was just that one piece. So now I, I always look for sleep disturbance, right? Are you Mm -hmm. sleeping too much? I'm looking for depression. Are you sleeping Uh too little? And so regardless of what they answer, I now say, is that the amount of sleep that you want to be getting? Right. Where I never really used to say that. Maybe I said something else, but now I just blatantly say. Uh And so um, I think that's a really just a good tip that a parent could take too. Mm -hmm. If your kid is over or under sleeping, Uh ask them. Right. How much does it match up with what they're, what they're hoping for? Right. Cause that, that can be so, so important. There's so few clear indicators for, um, psychiatric diagnoses. You know, we don't have the benefit like medical professionals do of saying, Oh, your temperature's 101. That means automatically you've got a fever. Right. You know, we have to look for all these behavioral indicators that are so fuzzy that they, mm-hmm. they can be, but that decreased need for sleep, that experience of I hardly slept and like who, who cares? That's a really concrete, clear sign that something's off and it's um, likely an elevated mood. I would add to that. If if there's someone listening to this and they have a child who they're worried about their moods, um, one of the things that I look for too, is their risk taking. Absolutely. Right. And uh-huh. so, and then again, you can say, well, don't most teenagers take risks, mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. but you describe it. Maybe what would be the difference between an average teenager taking a risk and maybe a child who may have a mood disorder or bipolar disorder doing high risk behaviors. So that's, that's a really great question. It's another area where there's a lot of, um, it's fuzzy, right? There's no clear quantitative, um, concrete distinction. Um, so the best way I can describe it is through examples, you know, a typical, um, teenager pushing the boundaries might, um, stay out past curfew, might experiment with substances like marijuana or alcohol. Um, but they're going to be responding appropriately to consequences. You know, if there's, if they're grounded, if they're, um, if they have natural consequences, then there's going to be, um, you're, you're likely to see a decrease in that risk-taking behavior for kids that have mood problems. A lot of times there's not that response to consequences that can shift their behavior. And, and oftentimes the intensity of that risk-taking is really out of character. It's not just, I'm going to stay out an hour past curfew. It's that I'm, I'm going to leave and I'm not going to come home for two or three days. Um, one of my favorite examples from a family that we had in one of these, um, studies came in maybe about, um, a couple weeks after this teenager had had a potential, um, manic episode. And one of the, the cues that the mom mentioned was that he was being particularly risky and he was a, um, he rode BMX bikes and he was, he was into that scene. But when she drove home during when he was in this, uh, this elevated state, he had set up a, 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 bike park basically in his house while she had been away and he had ramps going up to this first level of the house. He had been biking on the roof at one point, just extraordinarily risky behaviors that were out of character, even for somebody who's really familiar with BMX bikes. So the, the intensity of these risky behaviors is, is, um, noteworthy, more likely to be noteworthy if it's part of a, a mood diagnosis. So if somebody has a kid mm-hmm. that is like, a wow of a story, right? <laughs> right. Uh-huh. So someone has a kid like that. 
my experience is that the first thing they're going to do is they're going to go to their pediatrician. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like today pediatricians are equipped to know these kinds of signs and make the appropriate referrals? That is, you know, that's a, it's a great question. I think that it, it is certainly improving now, um, with increased awareness of bipolar disorder in kids and youth. Um, and I also think that it's one of those areas where, um, pediatricians vary in terms of their familiarity with, with exactly what we're talking about, that difference between, um, the, the, um, typical aspects of, um, of, of teenage development and these really specific ways that that can vary from into, um, mood diagnoses. And so I guess what, what that requires that ability to say, yes, this is a mood, um, diagnosis is not only this shift in intensity, but we're also looking for a clustering of things happening together. If somebody's having, um, if someone's doing well, but they have these experiences in isolation, um, like risk-taking behavior or sleep dysregulation, that's not as likely to be a mood diagnosis as it would be if they had mood shifts, if they had sleep dysregulation, if they had appetite dysregulation and risk-taking behavior that were all happening together, all shifting together. Um, and, and that, um, a lot of times that complexity for, um, it, it, there's a lot of complexity in the assessment. There's a lot of complexity in um, trying to differentiate between normal teenage behavior and, and bipolar disorder. That's um, where it, it really it, it suggests that a referral makes sense in those cases, rather than a pediatrician trying to digest all of that and handle all of that in in one of the the well checks. Right. I think that, and that's why all of us. Um, need to be our kid's advocate, right? Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. if your gut says, and like you're saying, there's very good pediatricians and they're very good at what they do, mm -hmm. but now pediatricians have this demand on them that they know mental health as well. Right. 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 And that's not what they're trained in. Right. So I feel like, you know, having conversations like this, if there's a parent listening and your pediatrician says, ah, sounds like, you know, they're being a a teenager mm -hmm. or, mm -hmm. you know, maybe you should go see somebody. It's more than that. This is really, even for you who does this for a living, it's still a complicated, Absolutely. complex process mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and important to get it right. And I think that's a really good point for parents to go with their gut. You mm -hmm. know, if it's the more information you can have about what's going on, um, with your child's mood, with your child's dysregulation in sleep or, or difficulty with going to school or difficulty with functioning at school or with friends, sorting that out as early as possible is so important. It's so important for how the family's doing. It's so important for how your child's doing. Um, so I, I think really trusting your gut and asking for those referrals, even if, um, a pediatrician doesn't, um, automatically offer them. I think that's a really important step. Yeah. So going back to the family piece mm -hmm. again, uh -huh. um, what's it like to go through the program that you do mm -hmm. for the rest of the family members who don't have the diagnosis and maybe feel like, well, why do I have to be here? I'm not the one that has the bipolar disorder. My brother does, or my right. dad does. And so that's my part A question and part mm -hmm. B, because I just used the brother father example. Mm -hmm. Is it more prevalent in males than in females? Oh, great question. So I'll start, I'll start with that one for, um, for bipolar one, which is the more intense version of bipolar disorder. That means somebody has mania. 
um, it's actually an even split between um, males and females. Is that it's um, it's it's you're just as likely to be male or female to have a bipolar one diagnosis. With bipolar two, it's less common in males. Gotcha. <laughs> and so going back to the original yes. bigger uh-huh. question. Uh-huh. So you are, you know, you're sitting there as a family member. What is mm-hmm. that like? And what kind of feedback are you getting from, from siblings or spouses around being going through this process? So it's, it's a really common circumstance where there's, we'll say, um, a range or a variety of levels of motivation across family members to, to, um, be willing to go to therapy in the first place or to remain engaged throughout the process. Especially if we have only one person in the family, that's what we call the identified patient or the person who has the diagnosis. Um, you know, that there's, Um, one of the initial steps in this family focused therapy protocol is to really work with the family to identify, uh, the goals of why they, their, what they want to be working towards to really tap into their motivation for why they'd be, um, wanting to come in for family therapy. And often that's a great chance to, to work with individuals on exactly what you're talking about. You know, if, if somebody's having difficulty with identifying goals Or they say, I don't, you know, a lot of times when I I work with kids and teenagers too, a lot of times they're like, I don't even want to be here. This is, um, you know, I'm not into therapy. Um, Trying to get a sense of something that could improve if they were, it's something that they would be interested in seeing improve by staying in family therapy can be an important part of keeping them engaged, even if they don't have symptoms themselves to work on. So I guess, you know, if, if you stay in treatment, it will get your parents off your back. You know, if, will they stop pestering you about um, learning these kinds of skills? Okay, if that's part of it, let's just focus on that. But how can we do this treatment well enough to keep, um, to help you feel more independent at home or to keep your parents from bothering you on, on these, in these areas? Yeah, that's a good way to put it to a teenager. Yeah. <laughs> so what are the other cities or universities that are utilizing this family focused treatment model. So it's, it's something that's really, um, remained within the academic community in terms of the, um, in terms of, of access to this particular treatment, meaning that a lot of the, um, a lot of the therapy has occurred in the context of these randomized control trials or, or pilot studies for the protocol. Um, and so right now, um, so Dr. McLewitz has, um, a lab out at UCLA. And so they've been working on disseminating uh, its use into the community mental health programs out there and increasing its um, access, um, clinician access in the, the community out in, um, in LA. And, um, but, but aside from that um, localized availability, there hasn't been much by way of um, trainings in this protocol or, um, or workshops. Um, just given that focus on, on the academic, um, assessment of the protocol. And so one of the things that I've been really trying to work on over the last couple of years is increase clinician access to the protocol, um, because we have so much data through those studies to suggest that it works really well. Um, it works well to, um, decrease the intensity of depressive symptoms, to reduce the risk of relapse, to improve the quality of life for individuals with bipolar disorder. Um, And it compares really well to other protocols that are widely available, like cognitive behavioral therapy or interpersonal and social rhythm therapy. So like it works just as well, or does it work even better according to the studies that you have? So 
That's a great question. For so if, if I put my researcher hat on, get as specific as I can here, that this is for the studies that have looked at adult patients with bipolar disorder in the comparisons with CBT or IPSRT. Um, there were a number of outcome variables where they performed equally well. Um, and then there were, um, a f there was one, and now of course, I think there was one, maybe two variables where FFT performed, um, was superior to CBT and IPSRT. I mean, that's amazing. I feel mm -hmm. after I was trained on this and heard you talk about it and I am a total systems oriented clinician, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, I can think of nothing better than getting the whole family engaged. I also see that there'd be probably some obstacles with that. Mm -hmm but also maybe the upside of getting the identified patient to therapy every week. Right. 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 Cause that can, I think medication compliance is one of the biggest hurdles, mm -hmm. correct. Mm -hmm. In treatment. And, uh -huh. um, so I'm, I am really curious. Um, how do you deal with it though, from that family perspective, mm -hmm. when someone is just overtly resistive, like this isn't my problem. And I, I need to right. go home and do homework or go to the mall with my friends. Right. So I have had one, one patient once a 12 year old boy who asked for a therapist for Christmas and everybody else that I've met with, um, child or teenager has had some degree of, I don't want to be here. This isn't going to work. My parents made me be here. Um, there's that resistance that you come up against. And so there's, um, I think one of the first steps in addressing resistance, which can be even greater in the context of family therapy, is to sort out where that resistance is coming from. You know, is this person really reluctant to engage because um, they've done therapy in the past and it's gone really poorly? Is it that it's a family where it's really uncomfortable to talk about emotions? Um, are they um, concerned about the fact that, um, they aren't sure if this is going to work. And so it's easier just to retreat rather than risk the treatment failing. Um, are they just bored? You know, maybe they're just not, not into what's going on, but, but if I have a sense, if I can, if I can spend some one-on-one -on -one time with the person or even a series of people in the family that are being resistant, then I can try to find some common ground. You know, if, if treatment is boring, thank you so much for telling me, let's see what we can do. My challenge over the upcoming three sessions is to do whatever I can do to make this, um, these meetings a little bit more interesting for you or more applicable to the changes that you'd like to see at home. Will you give me a shot? Let's do an experiment for the next three weeks. And you tell me, I'll check in and see how you think I'm doing. And yeah, so that's, it's, that's great languaging. And maybe even like I was thinking, for how difficult it might be for kids who a parent is the one with a mm -hmm. bipolar, but you know, just having that languaging, um, mm -hmm. because I think whether we're talking about bipolar disorder or anything else, there's a lot of times resistive resistance to treatment. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, so where can people, where can people get trained and do you travel and train people in other cities? Though somebody's listening to this and says, gosh, this sounds great. Is there, is there an option for other people? So that's, so work, the, the short version is I'm, I'm working on that program right now is that the, um, right now I've been really fortunate to receive funding through, um, the caring for Colorado foundation and through support of the CU Johnson depression center to, um, develop a, a training program that's focused on increasing clinician access to FFT in Colorado. Um, and, and what my, my hope is 
is to expand the program so that it's available in different states to clinicians who, um, right now the, the, they have access to, um, the, the manual, there's a, a published manual for the treatment, but there's, there's not workshops, um, across the country. And what I'd really like to try to do is continue developing this, um, program so that we can, uh, so we can change that because it's something where, um, you know, I, I, um, in addition to the data that really suggests this is something that um, can be very helpful for patients, I just personally really, I really like using the protocol. You know, these families can be really, um, they can be experiencing a lot of stress. They can feel really chaotic and having this really um, structured framework to help families um, reduce that stress and see that the, the kinds of support that they can provide for their uh, family members with bipolar disorder, it's really rewarding. And it's something that, um, I think the, the protocol is really, um, it's concrete, it's skills focused, it's very, um, flexible, but, um, and adaptable to a family's needs. And so I think it's the kind of thing that clinicians can make, um, quick use of in their practices. And so what I'm trying to do is improve access to care to bipolar patients through increasing access to this protocol. Um, for clinicians, and and my hope is to continue doing that in the future. And the the best way to access it would be through the um, the um, website for the depression center. So that's Colorado Depression Center um, dot com. And there's a, a subsection of um, community resources and programs. And there's a, a tab for the family focused therapy program. I think that's so great. I think if someone's listening that's in Colorado or outside of Colorado, I feel like this is the time right now where mental health is on. The minds of many, many people, and hopefully people can seek it out, seek out the resources. I've been through part of the training and it's phenomenal and has just, um, enhanced my work. So I hope that more people will be able to get access to this. And I thank you for the good work and the good research that you and your colleagues are doing. Thank you so much. Thanks I'm, for being on. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye.